and welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Engel. And I'm uh, Joe Dater, and this is Minute 112. And uh, in this minute, the crew of the Bacchus 3 set off to destroy an alien race's superweapon and confront the sinister leader of the marauding Star Wolves. Oh, wait, hold on. Do you want to try that Try that again? <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? I'm sorry. There's been a mix-up here. Uh, <laughs> I watched the 1986 film Star Force Fugitive Alien 2 and okay. prepared for that, to do a podcast about that. So uh, the, the classic uh, Japanese uh, film. And uh, I'm sorry. Hold on one moment. I just... Uh, okay, here it is. Here it is. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Aliens, right? Yes. Jim Cameron's Aliens? Okay. Ah, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> welcome to Minute 112. Minute 112 begins with Ripley cocking her gun and ends with a point-of-view shot of Ripley as she begins to exit the elevator. And uh, joining uh, myself and uh, John is Susan Kruglinska. Howdy. Welcome. Howdy. Thanks for having me once again, J2, yes. of this really exciting five minutes. It's a well, it's we, a very exciting five minutes, and this episode will indeed be about five minutes because there's <laughs> there's there's little going on here You've that wasn't much, already you, going you, on in the last minute. Your description pretty much covered the uh, entire <laughs> yes. the entire. Well, I, I okay. Here's what I here's what I want I want to bring up is uh, Ripley is in this elevator now, and she's doing sort of what you do in an elevator, which is you continue multitasking for the duration of the ride, which is so she she briefly interrupted her, like clicking things into other things and, and doing stuff to get on the elevator. And then as soon as the elevator doors closed, she went right back to it, like you'd go yeah. back to your book or something. Right. And so she's doing more of this, putting a thing into another thing and grabbing a thing and, and zipping up a thing. The equivalent and, now would be having your cell phone and going on Instagram and doing this and doing that on right. your cell phone. Right. Even though you know you've only got a few minutes in the elevator, you're still going right. to get that time in, you know, go back to your newspaper or whatever you had there. But what I want to ask you is, because it, 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 it's continuing the last minute from her getting ready montage her sort of you know the close-up insert shots of the clicking thing and the grab the thing and the put the vest on and the ammo do you do that ever when you're getting ready in the morning do you like imagine yourself doing that you well if i have 19 minutes if you only have 19 minutes until your apartment self-destructs right if right you know which it feels like sometimes is the case so you know when you're when you're running late and you're on your way to something, yeah, I can I sort of identify with this grabbing and running and you know loading up my weapon. I I, I do that. Yeah, I think if I'm a, if I'm trying to get out of the apartment real fast, I put my flares right in my pocket. Right, exactly. yeah. yeah, you want to do that? Like I don't just grab the flares, put them in my bag, and then when I'm in the car or walking to wherever I'm going, I, then I put them in my pocket. I feel like they just put the flares right in your pocket. Uh, that's one thing I don't understand. We get this like uh, second part of the gear up scene where she's kind of doing these redundant things. True. It's like, well, why didn't she just do all this up there? Those are flares. Um, Wait, those are flares. The yeah, she has things. little flares. Okay, these little pockets. Okay, I thought they were like futuristic breath mitts or something. Oh, that would be. I mean, I guess that would freshen your breath. Well, because even in this situation, even in this situation, you never know who you might run into. Could be Mister Wright. <laughs> you want to have your Altoids ready. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Who knows? Always be prepared. But I do. I will do that. I, sometimes when I'm getting ready, just as I'll, I will just disappear into a little fantasy of suiting up like Rambo, and it'll be like I'll grab my my jacket, zip it up, 
put my wallet in my pocket, grab my keys, with the, put them in the other pocket, grab my, uh, my gun, which I always take with me, and uh, just imagine myself in that uh, montage. Imagine the tiny little insert shot of my hand putting the, wa- the wallet in my pocket. Yeah, I do a lot of uh, like kung fu movie sound effects while I'm doing it. Like, yeah, I do a little whoosh when I. Oh yeah, of course pocket. you have to do that. Or you have to add that. The yeah. yeah, it just put, it puts a little pep in your step for the day. You it know, sure it does. makes everything seem a little bit less uh, less tedious. Yeah, and, and even if I'm not going out to kill someone right then and there, I know I'm ready to oh. if I have to. And, and let's oh, well. point out here: the, there's music going on while she's doing this. Uh, which is pretty good music to picture if you're in your apartment uh, gearing up for your job where you have to kill people. But this is not, uh, to me, this is not very good music. And I I think John Horner does, a you know, for what he had very little time, this was a rush job. uh, And the opening music is great. The closing music is great. Some of the music in between. But this scene, the music really brings this movie down a bit. I think it's unfortunately um, not the best music. uh, And it kind of cheapens cheapens this whole scene yeah I, there's parts this the score has its ups and its downs and i think as a uh thing to listen it, to because it's the own, elevator right well that's uh. true that's true um I, I like to listen to the score on its own you know without the movie you know yeah. sometimes while i'm working or whatever I, li- I listen to a lot of movie scores when i'm writing and this one's a pretty good one but when you watch the movie sometimes you do feel like things are out of place like bits of the score are out of place then and i think we've talked a lot about it Horner was on a really, really, really tight schedule with this, yeah. and a lot of, in a lot of instances, it just feels like he didn't have time to write something. So yeah. he would like lift something from the Wrath of Khan score or whatever that might be. And, and you're right. I mean, I'm not. I don't like hate the music here. I don't notice that it's like really bad, but it's not. Uh, I don't know. For me, it jumps you, out at me as as it feels cliche and it brings the scene down for me. It really does affect it for me. Like, and I really again, there are parts in the movie where I love the music, and I really think he did do a great job with the opening you know the main you know theme of the the movie music but uh this scene it really feels cliche like hugely cliche and then to add on to that are the colors that are going on which you know are some nice choices but it looks really fake like it looks like there are light bulbs red and blue gels called the gels you can almost picture the gels in front of the light bulbs as she's as she's going down and that's a very 80s thing too at this point um, cinematographers and art, art directors are throwing a lot more color into movies, you know, and, uh, you know. Really? Uh, you think? I think, yeah. I feel like there's less color in movies. I feel like this was the 80s when you could actually have colors in movies. And we now live in an era where everything is green, where you go see a movie and, and they've dialed down the color and made everything sort of a sickly, sickly greenish. Well, it's come. It's gone like, to an extreme that, yeah, now. That, that, now it's tinted. The movies the teal are entirely and orange. The teal and orange yeah. uh, conundrum. Movies now are know. entirely tinted. I mean, you know, the, the the color scheme concept has gotten out of hand. I think at this point. Yeah. But this was, I think, in the eighties. I mean, the seventies were ultra real. You just had straight color. You know, yeah. just realistic color. Um, and then, you know, I mean, the standouts were like Carrie was like shocking because it had so much uh, dramatic color to it. And like, obviously, Suspiria, you know, was a, was outstanding. Kubrick's films, you know, were, were outstanding because he thought very carefully about the color palette. I think he was, you know, one of the people who kind of pushed that idea forward yeah. where you came up with a color palette that was very, very um, distinct to the movie. And well, this was Jim. This is a Jim Cameron movie. So he was... I should point out he was going through his blue period, 
He was, which, yeah. lasted, which has lasted his entire career. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he loves that say. man loves blue. It's, everything is blue and shiny and metallic in his movies, which is is kind of wonderful is as a signature visual style. You always know when you're looking at a James Cameron film. You always know it's not a Terry Gilliam film. You always know, you know exactly what you're seeing there, and I think that's great. I did. Um, talking about color palettes, I watched a movie which I watch every Halloween because we just had Halloween here. Um, which is a holiday that we have here in the U.S. And it generally involves uh, enjoying spooky things. And so I watched Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow again, which I think is kind of the perfect Halloween movie. Is it's such a sort of a, a cheese fest of uh, silly uh, Halloween spooks uh, in a very non-adult kind of way. It's very sort of a kid's movie almost. Um, but he does a really great thing with color in that, which is he's trying to make it look like an old Hammer film. And I know I've talked about this before, but it's he, it's his homage to Hammer films. And Burton turns down the color saturation in that movie so much that it's almost a black and white movie. You know, everything is gray and muted and drab until someone gets their head cut off. And then this bright red, super saturated blood is all over the frame. And it is so, so cool and and looks so neat. And it's such a great use of color in that and i don't see good uses of color like that in movies anymore it's i mean very rare instances it seems like there's this sort of generic wash of green tint that just goes over everything now and this movie looks so much better than modern movies to me for that reason i think it it just crosses the line a little bit i think the original alien the color palette is a little more realistic and it works better and it's still Mm. an amazing color palette Mm. um Just like 2001 is just stunning. The color is stunning, but it's not cheesy. And here I feel like it's just a little bit too fake looking. It looks a little bit too much like, you know, again, lights with gels. uh, And it's a little too much color. And uh, it just brings it, uh, it cheapens it just like that. The music in the scene. And this is one of the most colorful scenes, actually. You know, I mean, overall, the use of color is, is quite good in this movie. But in this particular um, couple of minutes. I just think it's a little, a little bit, little bit much. I do like the glowing, the glowing pipes in the background. I guess they're supposed to be just white hot, red hot with with heat, right? I didn't know. I didn't know those were supposed to be glowing pipes. I thought they were just supposed to be red sort of tubes of uh, of light. I was wondering. Yeah. They seem like red tubes of I light. I, do, like I like safety. the way though. Yeah, I do like the way that the the. I mean, this is in the Acton power plant location, right? Right. Yeah, this is in the sort of uh, uh, sort of abandoned power plant that they filmed in. This is a found location, and they right. dressed it with things. And I think that's one of the things they dressed it with are those those red tubes of light. But I do I like those a lot. I didn't know what they were though. Um, I have a feeling they're glowing to... metal. I I am assu- they're so hot. That's, that's my guess. Wow, that's, that, that would that's, have to be. That's no, my, I, I think mean, later we get hot, close shots of them though, and it looks like there's there's like a red strip attached to kind of low pipes that it's supposed to be like a security you know like attention there's a pipe here don't hit your head on it is what i took it to be but it could be different i mean there could be two different things because you're talking about way in the background so uh, i'm not sure that would apply to the pipes you're talking about well when she gets to the when the elevator door opens you can see really clearly these 
and yeah, I don't yeah. know, maybe you you're see right. them more in the next minute, I think. I, I well, yeah. at the very end of this minute, it's a very, very clear shot of them. Um, but maybe you're right. In that case, I find them a little cheesy. I like the idea that there may be, you wow. know, because we have fire and steam coming out everywhere. We have lightning yeah. in the background. A lot of steam. Um, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, between the steam, the fire, and the the lightning. You know, this is yeah. a very crazy, active, tropical environment. There's so much steam if you look closely in the background you can see an overweight Russian man in a towel. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I saw. You know what? I'm looking at a future minute. I just happen to have it up on my computer. And you're right. There is a big glowing. It has to be an effect that's been thrown on this pipe behind her because the whole pipe is glowing red and it looks really phony. And I don't know why. I thought it was, a light. I thought it, was a, it was meant to be a light, though. I didn't think it was meant to be huh. look like a uh, glowing metal pipe. Yeah, I don't know. It does. Yeah. It it's it's weird. I mean, if it's supposed to be a big red glowing red light, why isn't there any red light in the scene? Like hmm. you would think, if that hmm. was the case, there'd be red light in the scene. But the scene's still very blue. Right. So, it looks like heat well, to me. I don't yeah. know. It's Cameron. It, Cameron hires armies of artisans to meticulously paint everything blue right before filming. So that might be the reason for yeah, that. You know, there's like tiny little elves that come, the Cameron elves that come in and paint everything uh, blue. Well, we'll tell you, this um, yeah. is a couple of minutes down the line. We'll talk more about that in minute 114, which is the minute that I happen to have up on my computer. But. Okay, okay. This is minute 112, so 114 is when? Uh, Thursday. Thursday. I believe Thursday. Okay, this Thursday. So I, write I that down. If I, you can't, I can't make it. <laughs> okay, um, I want, uh, here's what I want to talk about. No, wait, wait John, you go first. Well, I was just going to say we're uh, still in the elevator. You know? <laughs> that was what that was where I was going to say. <laughs> okay, we're. Uh, uh, I wanted to to talk about the shot here. We got the camera set up here to her right while she's gearing up and doing all that, and in the background we're getting a, like a, a rear projection shot or front projection shot. I always have a hard time differentiating between the two. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a projection shot, right, of the plant going on. You know, things going on, little test coil lightning going on in the background there. And I, I was thinking about the, the moving parts of this whole thing because clearly they can't have her go down many, 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 many layers of, you know, of a real power plant or something. Yeah. So they had to create this process shot. And all the layers that go into that where you're trying to convince the audience that we're seeing an elevator go down. So we have that projection going by behind her. Then we have to have somebody, you know, a, a light rotating around uh, on the front of the elevator then casting shadows on her that uh, right. there's going to be a guy a guy the, there with a light moving it up and down to do that yeah and uh, just all the things that go into making a scene like this and it never really occurred to me that it was you know i, I never really looked at it before and went oh this is a, just a process she's just sitting in a elevator set and everything's moving around her i I always thought it was actually pretty well executed and i look at that it now great. and i'm like oh yeah i can see i can see the moving parts now that i'm looking at it very closely but i thought it was Pulled off a pretty good effect there. Well, and on um, the commentary, sorry, on the, on the commentary track, they were saying that they 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 were implying that the elevators were real because they ended up um, when the queen comes up uh, and she gets on the elevator. I mean, that's completely unrealistic. It's way smaller right. than her body actually is. But they had to do that because that was the elevator they had because that was part of the plant. So I think that elevator is real. Yeah, but that background is a process shot. So they yeah, the clearly whatever they had in the real background yeah. they couldn't use. Yeah. Yeah, they had to knock out. They actually had a set. They say in the commentary that the tail of the alien queen 
uh, getting way ahead of ourselves talking about her, but it's actually sticking out through the back of the set is what they said. Mm -hmm. So there's actually like a elevator set that matches. There's real elevators and then there's matching oh, uh, sets. So it's, you know, they're switching between the two, I think. Now this could still be the real elevator, but they couldn't possibly, you know, I, I don't think they could have gotten all that detail in the background from, you know, an actual moving elevator. Plus it would be difficult to get the entire crew inside of there. I don't know. It's a, I wonder, you know, if somebody yeah, out the there crew might be able to tell us whether that's the a set or a the real crew elevator. in there and the caterers and then the maids yeah. got to come in and then somebody opens the door and they all spill out into the hallway. It's hilarious. And, you know, it's in England, so they have to have all the tea service in there. Because they, you know, they're famous for having to take their tea of time course, on movie course. sets in England. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. There's uh, also there's got to be somebody with a fan like blowing her hair around, so it looks like there's wind coming in through the grating. You know. Yeah. And you know, it's a simple effect. It's not anything like or like oh, my mind's not blown or anything. I just love to see these classic little moves. You know, it makes you think about like car shots where sure. there's actually a guy in the background just holding two like like flashlights or something. You know, well, it is interesting how in the, God, yeah, in the Godfather there's a great shot like that where, where uh, Michael is in the car heading heading to uh, to Jersey. Uh, well, he thinks he's heading to Jersey, but he's going to Louis' restaurant in the Bronx uh, where he's, uh, you know, going to kill the Turk. Um, and uh, the they didn't have the money for like a real process shot, so they literally just had a velvet curtain and like a person moving two lights behind it, and yep. it works perfectly, it works fine, and it's 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 amazing. And I look at that and go, yeah, I can see it's just a velvet curtain with two lights, but it still looks fine. And it was I think somebody there was a name for it. I think Coppola had a word for that. It was like a poor man's process shot or something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they and and it's amazing how much mileage you can get out of a simple thing like that. And one of uh, uh, one of those things is just blowing someone's hair around. Like you can get a lot of mileage out of just the fact that there's someone with a fan just off camera, and that person's hair is blowing around, and suddenly they look like they're outdoors instead of indoors. And yeah. if you put like a you know a, a bright enough light on them or whatever, and suddenly you're you're standing on a roof, and when you're actually in a soundstage, and the only difference is it's that you have the hair blowing around. And I'm fascinated by stuff like that, you know, like how, how much how much uh, you can do on a, on a low budget. And there was a comparatively low budget on this film. I mean, if you. Oh, it's you know. a, it's unbelievable what they pulled off. Yeah, I mean, like the, some a of, lot it, of it was jury rigged. It's and incredible. Cam it, Cameron has this great ability to do that. Yeah. It's it's mind blowing. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, the, the amount of time they had. And the amount of money they had, and how quickly they put it together—it's it's just yeah. And how do you, John? Do you know how many, how much, what the budget was on this film? Like how many millions oh, he had to off work the with? top of my head? I think it was thirteen million. He made it look like so much more, though. He yeah, really I may be wrong about that, look, but I think he, it was thirteen million. But that's Cameron's genius: is he made it look like more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, he was he was incredible at that. Yeah. Now he makes movies look like he spent. Uh, uh, less than right, you know, yeah, he, oh, it's a two hundred million dollar movie. It's like, well, what, how, yeah. what was the catering bill on that? <laughs> right. Good grief! Not that I don't think it costs a lot to do computer effects, but come on. Uh, but yeah, it's he was very impressive. We've talked many, many times. We've sung, sung the praises of James Cameron as a director of practical effects and yeah. director of uh, getting away with you know selling ideas to the audience through this kind of cinematic trickery. 
He's very good at it. It's a shame that he decided to go with computers instead of sticking to practical effects. But yeah. is there anybody who is still using practical effects? I know, like the Bob. I, I just happened, you know, because I'm in horror movie mode with the Shining podcast. I know the Babadook. She did all um, practical effects, which you know it seems pretty rare. Do you? Are there other contemporary movie makers that are using practical effects who are insisting on it? Well, I don't know about the insisting part. I mean, more than as much as it's just a choice, but there's this guy, um, I think his name is, uh, what's his name, Craig Zoller, that did the movie Bone Tomahawk. Oh, I haven't seen that. I've heard. Uh, and I recently, The Brawl in Cell Block 99, I think is the name of it. I haven't seen that one yet. But um, he's kind of this big genre horror guy that's uh, recently come on the scene. And Bone Tomahawk is pretty amazing. Uh, as far, it's like a horror western and it's rough. There's a couple of scenes. There's one scene in particular it's infamous for that mm. is just like stomach churning. I've, like, I've been worried. I've been warned. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I believe it was, uh, you know, I believe every second of every movie he, he's made the two movies, I think so far. And I don't believe he's ever used a computer uh, generated effect yet. And I haven't seen cell block 99, but I hear it's got like some pretty complex stuff that you would think somebody would use computer generator effects for and he doesn't he refuses to do it so um that yeah. that guy greg Zoller is his name uh, is an up-and-coming guy but this is on a pretty low budget you know yeah so it's a, it seems like you can imagine there being a movement you know there has to be a backlash against all the cgi you know because it, it is Chris. you know we we of our generation admire so much these practical effects and you know it's really a, a hot topic of conversation nowadays and you would think that there would be a little bit of a movement to get back to that um, and plus, it's incredibly fun to work that way. You know, I mean, if we were all putting together a movie, wouldn't we love to do that? I mean, that would be a ball just to yeah. to, to do it that way. The way. Although the way they did the Alien Queen was they had one guy in there, then another guy strapped to his back. And no, there was like two guys strapped together at the waist. Yeah. And another guy uh, uh, upside down. And then they had hydraulics and a, and a giant marionette. And I think it stretches the definition of practical. I think that's highly <laughs> impractical. <laughs> That's true. And it was dangerous. A lot of this was very dangerous for the people involved. And, you know, people were breathing in toxic fumes. And, you know, I mean, of course, there's a lot of that. That is the downside of doing things well, real. I have some trivia about toxic fumes. Yes. The, about toxic fumes, which is that the, the act and location that we're in during this minute, the power plant, uh, before they could film there, they had to deal with the asbestos problem. Oh, yeah. I, and I so that. it was swept for asbestos, which then made the air in there better than at Pinewood Studios. So they had less to <laughs> less toxic fumes at this location, this power plant, than there were in the actual Pinewood Studios. Yeah. Well, then they started using that um, smoke, though. On this, apparently, it's an out. It's now outlawed. The the kind of smoke they used to the smoke like, machines in this oil, movie was it like an oil based I, smoke? Yeah, it was some chemical yeah. that is now not legal, and so they immediately dirtied up the air with something else, maybe not realizing as much that, that it was as harmful as it was at the time. But yeah, I mean, yeah. they were in danger. I mean, they had one scene where they were really choking, and right, they were quite. Unable yeah. to breathe. And I mean, you know, again, because I'm doing the Shining podcast, you know, there's there's at least a couple of Kubrick movies where he, the several Kubrick movies where he really endangered his ac actors and, and uh, crew, you know, uh, including The Shining, where the fog machine was very toxic. 
um, you know, for, to, to get the ending foggy scene through the, the uh, hedge maze. Um, of course, Full Metal Jacket, they were breathing in all kinds of garbage. Um, and of course, on the set of uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, Malcolm McDowell broke his ribs, scratched his cornea and almost drowned. I mean, you know, that's the downside of the practical effects era is the, the actors were really, you know, really dealing with some bad stuff. Let's not even mention John Landis. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yes. Right. Well, yeah. Like, you know, a, um, a CGI helicopter would have been really good yeah, at that point. Yeah. So I was going to bring up, if we're going to talk about The Shining, you know, not to get too far ahead of your conversation about The Shining, but do you think, uh, you know, Kubrick ended up using some some CGI effects for Eyes Wide Shut, you know, in order to mask some things that I guess the studio deemed a little too explicit. Right. And it was, it was infamous, you know, post-production situation with that movie. But if you go back to The Shining, do you think if if you could get a practical or a CGI blood effect on, on Scatman Crothers, um, would he have done that over having Scatman Crothers have to put on a blood pack and get hit by a fake axe like 75 avoided, times or however many times avoided they shot actually that. killing Cat, scatman brothers on set which he did <laughs> which they almost did kubrick yeah. would um, kubrick would not have budged he would have been like no we're going to hit this man with an axe a hundred yeah. times he wouldn't have budged because he was like that kubrick kubrick was not too considerate as far as you know how he treated his actors and and crew of course shelly duvall was having panic attacks on the set you know because yeah. he was stressing her out so much um so yeah he would not have he would not have settled for that he would have he wanted he would have wanted it to be but again you know i think you know where more and more laws are coming into effect you know you really you know i, I think nowadays people would be more apt to even sue kubrick for having put them through something dangerous you know i mean that that's kind of the more of the climate nowadays of course that's also why they liked filming in in the uk was it was a little looser regulation wise i believe i've heard that I'm sure. Well, I mean, I, it seems as though the laws are a little bit, or at least were, a little bit looser for on on numerous, you know, for numerous things yeah. back then. So, well, Kubrick also wanted to never shoot five miles away from his house. So, yes, that was <laughs> there was that part. Yeah. So I want to talk more about uh, what Ripley's doing in the elevator, which that's our only option for this minute, of course. But um, there's. She's doing stuff in the elevator. She's sort of multitasking her, you know, getting her stuff ready. But I want to mention what she's not doing in the elevator, which is she is not stripping down to her underwear, which makes her markedly different from me right now and from herself in the previous film. Well, she takes off her jacket. and She takes off her jacket, but then she puts on this, this, this equipment ammunition vest. And I noticed, oh, this is this is way more Cameron-y than the previous movie because instead of stripping down in her underwear uh like she did uh, getting ready for danger she's about to go into a dangerous situation so of course naturally you want to strip down to your sexy uh, nighty uh but no in the cameron movie she's putting on all these things and they're all making this like satisfying clicking noise and there's ammunition and stuff going on and it's 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 different yeah it we'll have to wait till later you know i guess uh Cameron does finally go back to that to a certain extent towards yeah. the end, but never as much. And of course, the idea in Alien was that she was out of danger. She thought she was out of danger and yeah, I was guess free so, yeah. to do this. But yeah, well, my, my but yeah you do kind of think about it. It's hard not to like kind of think about it 
in that moment when she takes the jacket off. You're like, yeah. uh, the momentary thought of Alien there. But she's about business right now. She's not. It's not night night time. Well, by so. she, well, I mean in the Betsy Russell version from the same year, which is Angel versus the Alien, she does strip down completely nude and getting ready for uh, fighting the alien. But that's a wow. different movie, and that went straight to video. But the point is, you could you I, I saw that one on on Cinemax late at night. Uh, but I think, no, I think, but I think it's more like, this is what, this is like how, what Cameron gets off on. He gets off on a woman strapping guns to herself more than yeah. like a woman stripping down her underwear, probably. Well, so. we did have the, the, the one sex scene in this movie, so to speak, is when her Hicks is teaching her how to shoot a gun. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, that's your, that's your Cameron moment right there. Yeah. It's I like think bits so. of innuendo are thrown in there, but really, uh, it's much more, yeah. I guess, titillating to him to have you know, her cocking weapons and slapping in clips and yeah. Slap, and let me slapping say, in a clip. Isn't that as, sexy? As That's kind of sexy, right? As a female, I remember seeing this movie and the feeling that I got. And I mean, of course got that with the first alien movie, but this one too. And especially in the finale scene where she, you know, she's fighting in the fight um, as a female, there just weren't obviously many movies with women acting like this. And it was so it was such a good feeling. You guys just don't know. And I mean, I honestly, if, unless you're female, you don't know how good it felt to see a woman acting like this in a movie. Um, it, I'm offended that you assume I'm not female. <laughs> I know. And, you know, even now with the new Wonder Woman that came out recently, um, people are talking about how women are talking about how powerful they felt when they came out of that movie they wanted to kick ass and i remember that feeling seeing this movie so i just want to put that in from the female yeah. perspective this felt so good yeah, yeah. you know it really did yeah yeah i did like you said there's no way we, we like i mentioned yesterday we have our you know men have their scenes of this going back to the beginning of movies you know and this was even like the year before we got the arnold and the stallone we've been getting that crap for you know decades and it had to be a great feeling for for you guys to to get this scene, and then a Wonder Woman as well. Like it, the sad thing seems to be how long of a gap there is between these moments in cinema. Yeah, the <laughs> like fact I've thought about this so many times. Princess Leia, you know, so badass in Star Wars. It, it took how long to do it again with with aliens and Ripley? It seemed right. like we. Why weren't they doing it more? And you know, I and I agree yeah. with you. I heard on you talking on this show about how they kind of squandered Leia, and I agree with that. She could have been such a stronger character, did a lot more, you know, kick-ass uh, heroic stuff. They kind of um, let her slip through after a while. Uh, but Ripley was just, you know, there was no, you know, she was the number one of the movie at all times, and. You know, and it is a shame that now the Wonder Woman, we're still talking about this. But at this point, you know, we should be much more used to this feeling of, of female heroine. And of course, the new Star Wars, you know, female heroines, it's like this novel thing. And here we are at 2017. Yeah, yeah. And cynically, yeah. you know, it, for so long, you had the biggest movie of all time with Star Wars with this strong female character. They didn't learn anything from it. You get Ripley. They didn't seem to learn anything from it. How the hell it took 70 years to make a Wonder Woman movie uh, is beyond me. Like how they didn't see that as marketable. And now and now it seems like it's finally come through. But the cynical side of me says, like, well, now they see how much money they can make off of it with Hunger Games. Now they got Wonder Woman. Now it's great to have. And, I'm, and you know, my argument to people that are cynical about it saying it's forced diversity and all that crap, I'm like, oh, that's I don't nonsense. give a shit. Like, I don't care. Like a little girl watches that movie and feels, you know, empowered by it. 
Well, yeah. That's all that matters. They don't care what the box office marketing crap is all about. So to me, it's great. I'm glad they finally got around to it. But what the hell took them so long? They had examples of the marketability of it, even right. to be cynical. About exactly. It, you know? It's like car. Yeah. It's like selling cars. They always sold them to men, even though it was always women who were the actual ones who who were actually making the purchases. And at some yeah. point, you know, it finally occurs to them who's actually buying the cars. You know, this is just the theme. This is the way it always is. Uh, you know. Well, I just want to. I just want to. I just want to end by saying that uh, I really like the dual elevator doors that open in two mm. in two oh, ways. Yeah. We- you know, we should not. Go it's more like satisfying. That, it's a bad satisfying shot. hardware. It's more satisfying hardware in this movie. Lots of satisfying hardware. It's like when yeah. you get a when you get a pen and you're clicking it and you go, oh, that's a satisfying. That's a good click. There's a lot of that. In What's this movie. satisfying to me is that when the elevator lands, the music stops. Because, like I said, I don't. The music. I like that suddenly it's silent and the rest of uh, this scene is going to be silent, which makes it much more intense and and real for me. I, I so I'm. I think it would be really funny if the doors opened and it was on the wrong floor and there was just an office with people in it going like, oh, who are you? Oh, <laughs> she just, yeah, no. She had to check the directory. No, you want see. the, this is the mezzanine floor. See, it's confusing because it says M. People think it's the main, but you want to hit L for <laughs> lobby. That's where the aliens are. So it's just, a, well, yeah, it's, keep it's, going all the way down. It's the work, this is mezzanine. It's worker aliens at desks, I imagine. I'm thinking Right, they're just like alien. looking up from the desk. They just go back to work and she goes to right. the next floor. That'd right. be good. All right. Well, you guys ready to close this one out? Yeah. All right. Susan, why don't you let everyone know again where they can find you online? I am at theshining237.com on Twitter, Facebook, and on iTunes. Joe and I'm uh, Joe Dater. You can follow me uh, with that name, no spaces, uh, on all of the social media platforms, including ones that have yet to be invented. <laughs> and you can find us at AlienMinute.com on Twitter at AlienMinutePod on Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. You can also uh, drop a couple bucks in our virtual tip jar if you feel inclined to do that. That's on the welcome page of our website. Do that. Uh, do we that. also have five yeah, bucks. Do that. Just That'd five awesome. bucks helps out a lot. Yeah, it does. The, the bills have been piling up over here. So, um, also we have some T-shirts over at T Public. If you want to go to the Alien Minute uh, T Public page, you can uh, go check out some of our designs over there. All right. Well, that's going to do it for Minute One Twelve. We'll see you tomorrow for Minute One Thirteen.